Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang. And in this episode of the podcast, I wanted to do more than just talk about USC athletics. In the wake of George Floyd's death on May 25th, at the hands, or maybe more accurately, the knee of the Minneapolis policeman that was pinned on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, we've seen protests take place across not just America, but the world, seeking justice, racial equality, and an end to police brutality. We've seen athletes from many sports, professional and collegiate, speak up on social media, traditional media, and by attending protests themselves. I've been trying over the last two weeks to come up with a way to have a discussion on this show that deals with both the larger social issues that are involved here and how it affects USC's sports and student-athletes. I knew that I wanted to have different perspectives represented on this show to have a roundtable talk of sorts, so I've invited three of my friends, classmates, and colleagues from USC to join me today for what I hope will be an informative and engaging look at where we stand in this country as a whole and at USC specifically. The first guest I'll introduce is someone who is already familiar to those who were listening on the previous incarnation of this show as the USC Football Podcast, because he was kind enough to guest host a couple of times with me, Marcus Grant, fantasy football analyst for the NFL Network and NFL.com. Marcus, glad to have you back for the new show. It's good to be back on the new show. I'm looking forward to it because one, it's a chance for some of us to get together who haven't, we haven't all been able to connect in quite a while. So in that respect, it's nice, but also just looking forward to just kind of having the conversation as well. Glad to have you aboard. And my next guest was a member of the staffs at Trojan Vision and KSCR Student Radio, along with Marcus and myself during our time as USC students, and is now a news anchor and reporter for KTRH Radio in Houston, Corey Olson. Corey, thanks for taking some time during your vacation to join us. Thank you, Nari. Yeah, great to be back with you, with Marcus, and with Bill. It's great to be with some old friends, and obviously, the four of us can sit and talk sports for two, three hours like we used to in college, but sometimes it's fun to talk about even more serious issues and things like that and real-life stuff, so it's great to be back with you guys and looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate it, Corey. And finally, the third guest for this episode was also a part of the KSCR sports crew. And Marcus and I, as sports directors for the station, enjoy hearing his opinions and commentary so much that we gave him his own segment that he called So Sue Me. He also grew up in and is a resident of the Minneapolis area. Bill Sue, I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, from Nora, thank you very much for having me and having Marcus and Corey to talk about this. Brings me back to our days at KSCR almost a quarter century ago. I look forward to it. Thank you, Bill. And if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn, all of your favorite podcast directories. You can also go to the website, Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcast. For me, I am on Twitter. Find and follow me there at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Guys, any of you want to promote any social media, Twitter handles, whatever you want, throw it out there. 
Yeah, you can find me at Marcus G. It's M-A-R-C-A-S-G on Twitter. I have an Instagram handle, but I'm rarely on it, so it's probably useless to throw that one out there. For me, I post daily articles and news stories, everything at KTRH.com and also News Radio KTRH on Twitter and on Facebook is where we link all of our articles. That's the best way for my content that I'm actually putting out there. My social media is mostly just pictures of me eating and random things like that that you wouldn't want to see. (laughs) My main social media is my Twitter handle, and you can reach me and see me and watch what I retweet at Bill Sue. That's B-I-L-L-S-O-U. All right, I'm going to start this off by going to Bill because he's based in the epicenter of where this all began, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed in just the latest high-profile incident involving police brutality. What has it been like there since this occurred on May 25th, Bill? Well, it's been, when we're recording this, it's been two weeks since George Floyd's death. And the way I see it, the Twin Cities area has gone through its rage period, and it's now settling into this, what I consider an unusual, sustained period of protest. It was really, really bad starting um, the few days after the death of George Floyd. I remember first hearing about Floyd's death. Well, he was killed by Derek Chauvin on Memorial Day that evening. The next day, he and three of the officers who were there were fired. And that's when this witness video came out of Derek Chauvin holding his knee down on the neck of George Floyd. As you could tell, there were protests that evening and the Minneapolis Police Department responded to it by throwing tear gas and shooting rubber bullets at the protesters. But the protesters came back the next day. And it really got serious over those next few days where the protest grew, it got more violent, and the response by the MPD got more violent. And it sort of culminated with the burning down of the third precinct. That's the precinct those four officers worked out of. And finally, the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls, he called in the National Guard and enacted curfews and finally started to, well, take control through nonviolent and violent means over the weekend. And so things have been kind of steady here, even though the protests nationwide started to ramp up following that weekend. And now, as I see, protests have gone worldwide. I don't want to say it's really calm here. There is, again, a sustained feeling that things have to change, but it's nowhere, I don't believe, anywhere near the chaos and the violence that we saw about two weeks ago. And you have made it down to the memorial at the site of George Floyd's death. What is the scene kind of like? What is the mood there among the people? How big a crowd is going down there on a daily basis? Well, again, people are saying that the death of George Floyd is the final straw in Things will finally change after so many deaths of African Americans at the hands of police. I went there over the weekend, and at East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue is the intersection close to where George Floyd lost his life. And the city has still cordoned off the area so no cars can go through. I estimate that 
from the epicenter of the actual intersection, two to four blocks of Chicago Avenue are closed, and about two blocks of 38th Street are closed. And, well, there were a lot of people there, as you could tell. And, well, the crowd was so large that you could find many, many moods within that scene. As you could expect, there was a a carnival-like atmosphere there. And I don't know if everybody was there for the right reasons and instead just wanted to be seen. But there were, as you can tell, a lot of flowers. Yeah, a few people on their megaphones talking about an end to police brutality and calls for racial equality. But the vast, vast majority were just looking at the flowers and looking at the site and just being silent and just giving their condolences and praying and paying their respects. But there were other pockets of, I would say, well, I wouldn't say joy, but I could feel a sense of resolve. The fractured relationship between the Minneapolis Police Department and this particular community in South Minneapolis has been strained for a while. And I kind of got the sense from some people who were there at the memorial that this will finally change things. And so I wouldn't call it a celebration per se, but I think that some people who have felt that the police department has gotten way out of control in their community, they finally think that a change is finally going to be made and they just want to be ready for it when that time finally comes. And this isn't the first incident of police brutality that has taken place in the Minneapolis area, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Twin Cities. In July 2016, Philando Castile was killed in a traffic stop in a St. Paul suburb out there by the St. Anthony police. And just kind of go over maybe some of the history of the events between the police and uh, the community. Okay, well, Nara, as you can tell, it hasn't been all that great. I can give you some demographics that I lifted from both the New York Times and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Just to give an overview of race relations and demographics, African Americans make up 19% of the population of Minneapolis, but they are the subject of 58% of the incidents where Minneapolis police use force to control a subject. African Americans make up 9% of the Minneapolis Police Department. And in the past five years, MPD has used force against blacks at seven times the rate against whites. So there has been a couple of incidents within the past about a decade or so that has really soured the African American community and the Minneapolis Police Department. There was a killing of a young man by the name of Jamar Clark in 2015, and there was another one back in 2018 by a man named Thurman Blevins, who was running through an alley and who was asking MBT not to shoot him, but he was shot and killed. Philando Castile was not shot by an officer of the Minneapolis Police Department, but since that is the well-known case featuring a found video of a person dying at the hands of a police officer before George Floyd. Yeah, I should talk about him. Now, this was back in 2016, like you said, Nara. This took place in the city of Falcon Heights, which is a suburb of St. Paul. The officer who shot Castile 
His name is Euronimo Yanez, obviously a former officer. He was technically with the force of another St. Paul suburb, St. Anthony, and the city of Falcon Heights contracted with the city of St. Anthony for the police force. Anyway, this was a case where Yanez pulled over Philando Castile and his partner for a busted taillight. Castile had a concealed and carry permit, which is legal in Minnesota. And according to both police car footage, as well as the video shot by Castile's partner after Castile was shot, Castile told Yanez that he had a conceal and carry permit and a gun in his pocket. And there is some confusion over what happened, but the thinking was Castile may have been either reaching in his pocket or moving his hand up his thigh, whereby Yanez told Castile to freeze. And when Yanez determined Castile wasn't freezing, he shot his gun and eventually killed Castile. I think people know about the video. His partner recorded it and broadcasted on Facebook Live while Castile was dying. Now, Yanez was brought on several charges, including second-degree manslaughter, but a jury found him not guilty. So he was fired, and as you can tell, there was a settlement between the family and the city, and the city of St. Anthony reportedly gave the Castile family $3 million. And as you can also tell, there were protests after the not guilty verdict, and there were an estimated 2,000 people who marched onto I-94, one of the main highways here in, in the Twin Cities. And, well, that was it. And personally speaking, I saw that footage of Castile dying, and I thought that was so graphic that there had to be wholesale change demanded by the community to change these tactics when it comes to police shooting. And I was absolutely surprised that there wasn't, and it took, well, this killing two weeks ago of George Floyd to change things. We have seen a lot of things over the years that you think are going to lead the change repeatedly in various communities around the country, and yet we still are having this discussion. So let's see if this one is going to finally lead to some more change that is necessary in this country. Now, we had the memorial service there at North Central University on June 4th last week. A lot of guest speakers there, including the Reverend Al Sharpton, closing it out with an impassioned eulogy for George Floyd. And is that something that's helped the community maybe start the healing process and moving forward to try and find new solutions to this issue? Partially, but as I was talking about the resolve here, there is a huge movement going on to finally reform the Minneapolis Police Department. And things have changed at lightning speed for the MPD. Immediately after the fire rings, several organizations in the Twin Cities area decided that they will no longer contract with the Minneapolis Police Department to hire officers off-duty for security purposes. The first, and probably the most prominent, is the University of Minnesota. They contract with MPD to help with security for sporting events like football and basketball games. That's not going to happen anymore. 
Minneapolis public schools no longer want their services. The Parks and Rec Board decided they don't want their services. I think you know about the Rock Club First Avenue, you know, Prince made it famous. They used to hire MPD off-duty cops to help out. They're not doing that anymore. And in the meantime, the city council has gone in warp speed to change the Minneapolis Police Department. Over the weekend, they told the police department that they would no longer be able to use chokeholds and neck restraints. They enacted a new law whereby officers, regardless of rank, were to report any police officer using unauthorized force and order them to intervene if they see it or else be subject to crimes equal to the officer doing the offending. There's now a requirement that if the police department uses tear gas or rubber bullets or flashbangs or even batons, that only the police chief can give the okay. And finally, and I don't know if any of y'all heard this, this actually happened Sunday afternoon in a park, which was attended by hundreds of people, a veto-proof majority, and that is nine out of 13 members of the Minneapolis City Council, I believe, stood in front of this crowd and vowed to, quote-unquote, dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, they didn't describe specifically what they meant. There's speculation that they're just saying defund the police department, whereby you would reallocate funds that were going to the police department and instead use them for non-police interventions, such as social work and mental health initiatives. But that will take some time because there are contracts and there's, of course, inertia with the Minneapolis Police Department. But I've got to say, with the tempers dying down here, Nara, there is a remarkable push to finally change what has, to many people of color, been an oppressive force within their communities. And again, we'll see how long this goes because you can't really make sustained change without being in it for the long haul. But there are a lot of things going on with the Minneapolis Police Department, and they are already a pariah, and they might change irrevocably because of the death of George Floyd two weeks ago. I'm mostly interested to kind of watch Minneapolis because I feel like they're going to be an interesting test case for a lot of the country because I think what we have seen with so many people in the streets across the country and around the world, that cities are going to start to take a serious look at it. Now, I don't know that everybody is going to necessarily jump in the way the city of Minneapolis seems to be, but I do think a lot of places will kind of keep a cautious eye on how this works and maybe incrementally, because here, as much as some people would like for change to just be sweeping and immediate and huge and impactful, we have all lived long enough in this life to know that change is sort of incremental. And I think depending on these successes or failures of what happens in Minneapolis, I think that will determine how incremental some of these changes are in the rest of the country. And yet, Marcus, I got to say, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, and I don't know if you agree or not, but as people have said, this time feels different. You know what I mean? I don't exactly know the factors that go into it. Maybe it's the video. Maybe it's people that got cooped up because of the pandemic. Maybe it's the high rate of unemployment. Maybe it's the weather. I don't know. But I got to tell you, the energy that got sparked the days after Floyd's killing has really been superseded 
first nationwide that following week, and now I would assert worldwide. I don't remember the last time, if ever, a black person dying in the United States causing such worldwide massive, and I keep saying this word, sustained protest. And there are a lot of communities, Minneapolis foremost among them, that are, for lack of a better term, capitalizing on this and demanding government enact real actual reforms that some people think are overdue for their police departments. Now, again, maybe we should be cynical, but honestly, I didn't think that the death of George Floyd would cause such worldwide outcry, but it has. And so, I don't know, Marcus, maybe this is different. You said, Bill, you may be Pollyanna. I'll say that I may be a little bit cynical. And I'll say that while it is, I think, encouraging to see people have this public will toward making this systemic change, I think as you look across the country, there are cities and people who are sort of in positions of authority in those cities who are resistant to change for any number of reasons. I don't think all of them are nefarious or that all of them have ill will, but there is still so much with police forces tied up within the infrastructure of cities that is going to be hard to completely dismantle. So I think while there are people certainly in the streets who would like to see major sweeping change, I just continue to think it will be incremental. I think that that's just the nature of things in this country, really. Yeah, just jumping in on that as well, this is Corey here. I don't think it's Pollyannish or cynical necessarily. I think it's just realistic almost because that's just the way things work. Things move slow. And I think that it's more complicated than that. I mean, it's simple to just what Bill described happened yesterday in Minneapolis, where some of those council members got up in front of people and said, we're going to dismantle the police department. Well, it's easy to say that at the moment, rev up the crowd. But then you talked about what does that actually mean? Now, how do you actually do that? And you're just talking about one police department in one city. And what's happened in Minneapolis is obviously, based on what Bill described, something that was sort of a boiling cauldron that finally sort of exploded here and has led to this very rapid, as he mentioned, almost warp-like speed just in this matter of days of going from, oh, we'll try to change it something to let's dismantle the whole police department. So it's moving quickly, but I think it's different in every city as someone who lives in a major city like Houston now and is covered in the news, various issues like this over the years, various issues involving the police, some of the communities, some controversies. We have some still going on now with our police chief, some changes they've been demanding. We had some very serious incidences here in recent years. We had a situation where a bunch of police officers came in with a no-knock warrant last year and opened fire and a shootout occurred and a couple was killed. These were two white people, but they were killed. And then four officers were shot. It was a huge story, made the national news. They found out that it was all based on the warrant that shouldn't even have been acquired. There was a corrupt cop that basically lied to get the warrant. That cop has now been charged. He's been indicted. And there's something like hundreds of cases involving this cop. They've had to go back and just either throw out the cases, redo them, restart them. It's been a huge thing. So this has been a systemic thing in every city. But again, that's a unique thing to Houston. And Bill talked about the unique situation in Minneapolis. And Nara, Marcus, you guys are in Los Angeles. That's obviously a huge department. They've had years and decades we've talked about and covered in the news of issues there. Every city's different. We've heard of the NYPD in recent days. There's been a lot of talk there. Major cities across the country. So it's not just within one police department or one city making change, but you're talking about cities all over the country. And each city is different. Each department's different. And what works in one city or the changes that need to be made maybe in one city aren't necessarily the same as the changes that will need to be made in other cities. And every city's going to have to deal with their community, their elected leaders, their police chiefs, their stakeholders, get them together and find out what's best for their community. And again, that is going to take time. So I think it's just a matter of realistic that you can get up and say something and get all excited at the rally, but then, okay, now we have to actually go and do this. That process, as kind of Marcus alluded to, is a little messier and a little longer and a little more involved. And 
quite frankly, a little more complicated. While you're waiting out the pandemic at home, you can still enjoy betting with our partner, betonline.ag. No NBA, NHL, or MLB, but don't worry. BetOnline still has hundreds of games, events, and sports to wager on, including the return of NASCAR, Madden and NBA 2K simulations, the UFC, plus poker and blackjack in their online casino. And be sure to check out the final dance, BetOnline's special featuring former Chicago Bulls, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper discussing the ESPN docuseries, The Last Dance. There is still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. And Corey, I think that's a good transition we can make here because as we record this show on June 8th, George Floyd's body is back in Houston where he grew up in the city's third ward and played high school football and basketball. Funeral services and his burial are scheduled for tomorrow following the services we've already seen in Minneapolis and North Carolina where he was born. And Corey, since you do cover the news there in Houston, I wanted to have you kind of take us through what's been happening in Houston since George Floyd's death. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I would say it's been much different than what Bill described in Minneapolis. Houston is, for one thing, we didn't know we were going to be so, I didn't know it would be so involved in this story when the story first broke on Memorial Day night and the next day that there had been this horrific incident of the George Floyd death and the video was out there and people were outraged. And then we heard the police officers were fired the next day. The mayor was speaking out. There was talks and charges already. This was in the first 24 hours after the incident, after the death of George Floyd on Memorial Day. Then we find out later that I was there the next day in the newsroom and it comes in. Oh, by the way, breaking news, George Floyd is from Houston, grew up here, lived here. Oh, this is now a Houston story. So we had to jump in in our newsroom and with our resources and start to cover it. And we started looking at it. Yeah, obviously born in North Carolina, but he was raised in Houston, lived here most of his life, graduated from Yates High School, early 90s, was a high school football star here. Friends with former NBA player Steven Jackson, you probably saw speaking a lot about how they called him his twin. And a lot of people here in the community had family, friends, knew him, neighbors that were speaking out about him that knew him. I guess he had moved to Minneapolis several years back, though, to kind of find a new lease on life and find new opportunities. But he had quite a history here in Houston. So it became sort of a Houston story. So we started looking at that. And when that came out, it kind of changed the perspective of things here. Our mayor, who is black, Sylvester Turner, our police chief is a Hispanic, Art Acevedo. They've come out, made statements. And of course, the condemnation of what happened, I think, was universal, at least from my perspective, what I've seen all the leaders here in Houston and in Texas. But as of, I would say, two weeks ago, Friday, we started having our own protests here. And the first night, there was a lot of people, thousands of people. The police chief was out amongst them. He was talking with people right there in the streets, trying to address their concerns. There was one incident where a police car got vandalized and a brick got thrown through a window. I live near one of the the largest mall in Houston, the Galleria Mall. And the first Saturday night, there was some people that broke into the Forever 21 store for whatever reason and looted that. That was an incident. They had to shut down the mall. But since then, there hasn't been as much, not compared to anything like what I saw in Minneapolis or Atlanta or Philadelphia or some of the stuff I saw in the news in other cities or New York City. Houston, actually, it's been pretty peaceful, pretty calm. There's been a few 
minor incidences like that. But even that the situation with the mall, when I drive past it the rest of this week at night, they have kind of a perimeter around it and then kind of got everything cleaned up and everything taken care of. And the situation improved. Then uh, last Tuesday, we had a big public event. And this was important. The mayor, the police chief, community leaders, a lot of local celebrities, rappers traded the truth, Bun B, Sean Watson of the Texans, Carlos Correa, I think the Astros, a bunch of players community faith leaders, Joel Osteen, Pastor of Lakewood Church, largest church in America. They were all out there, kind of a community march. And it was very peaceful. And of course, members of George Floyd's family, his siblings and his family were there. And it was a very unique event. Organizers estimated it was 60,000 people. It certainly looked like in the tens of thousands. Marched from Discovery Green Park in downtown Houston to City Hall. There were several, about an hour's worth of speakers, local leaders. The family spoke, very encouraging. The mayor spoke. Then they marched back to Discovery Green, and it was very organized, very peaceful. The police were involved. They planned it. They closed off roads. We were covering it all day. A very good event and very few incidences. Now, that night after it ended, they had, the event was in the afternoon. There was people that hung on afterwards. There was about uh, 150, 200 arrests. Most of them were just people that were maybe throwing bottles at the cops, some people that were, it was kind of like uh, ragtag people. Again, we're talking about tens of thousands. And this was a couple of hundred and no major stories. I mean, we were kind of following it in the news to kind of keep an eye to see if we had things that were like that we were seeing happening in other cities. And fortunately, it didn't. And I think it was a testament to the mayor, the police chief, some of the leaders. They came out and they were and the Floyd family and said, let's keep this honorable. Let's honor George. Let's keep this on the tracks and keep it what we're really here for and not distract. And so I think that was very important. Even the mayor, like that night, uh, around 7.30 in the evening, there were still several hundred people out there and some kind of tension building between some of the police and some of the people out there. This is after the event had ended. And the mayor sent out some tweets saying, hey, if you're still out now, head on home. That's it. We had a great day. The Floyd family was here. This was a beautiful day. We came together. Let's not do anything to spoil it. Let's, we had our thing. Now we're going to let's move on and tried to quell things down. And that was important. So since then, the rest of last week, we've had several marches. There's been a few, like I said, a couple bottles thrown or things, but nothing. We haven't seen any major looting or vandalism or any fires or anything crazy in the last couple of days. So I've been pretty impressed uh, here. That aspect of the story hasn't been big here in Houston. I think that's important because I think that gets away from the actual story, what we've been talking about and what we're talking about here with police and with issues of force and with issues of race. Those get lost when you have to suddenly cover a news story about a building burning down or a, a clothing store being looted or something. That, that's like a separate, it's like two parallel news stories where, okay, on the one hand, we're covering these issues and the actual substance of the protest. And on the other hand, we have to cover, we're kind of watching like, I hate to say it, like we're covering a sporting event, like you're watching an auto race, watching for crashes. You're watching for something different than what the actual substance of the event is. And you have to kind of keep an eye, watch for somebody doing something crazy. And you hate to have to do that, but that's the way we've had to cover it. So I think it's important. And I, I've been pretty impressed in Houston that since then, it's because the Floyd, maybe the family came here and because the mayor and the police chief have been kind of out in front. We haven't had the major things, at least that I've seen in a lot of the other cities that happened early on in some of those days. But there's still people that have a lot of change they want to see here. There's issues with the police department here and the police chief. One of them is about body cam footage. We've had some incidents where they haven't released the body cam footage. The people want our police chief to release the body cam footage. And he's saying, well, there's issues. Does the family want us to do it? Is it going to possibly taint a jury pool? And so that's a big issue here. And that goes back to what I talked about before, where every city has its own particular incidents and issues. In Houston, it's been a big issue about releasing body cam footage. Should we do it? And the police chief has kind of said, well, we need a universal policy on whether we should do that or not. So there are issues here, but it's been, by and large, I've been pretty impressed with how it's been handled. And then, of course, as this is being taped, we have the public memorial today, and people are coming in, 
they're doing social distancing. They're making it very, uh, only 15 people in the church at a time, but it's been a very organized event throughout the day. People can come in and they can pay their respects. Tuesday of this week will be the actual funeral. That'll be a private event, the final funeral and the burial in Houston. But it's been very respectful, very organized, and much more calm than I've seen, in, like I said, in some of the other cities and what Bill obviously saw in Minneapolis and what we saw on the news. So in Houston, it's been a very emotional, it's sort of like a hometown sun because I think the family being here and because of the way the mayor and the police chief have handled it, overall, it's been much calmer, but there's still tension and there's still feelings and it's still very emotional. And even today, we saw images of people, uh, the governor of Texas was there paying his respects and various leaders coming in today at the public viewing. So there have been very powerful emotional moments, but I've been pretty impressed with how the community has come together and how the community as a whole has handled it here. And I think you bring up a really good point about the looting being a separate parallel story, because yes, it's part of what's going on, but it's really, like you said, diverting the attention away from the real issues and the real protesters are actually out there. Most of them have been peaceful. Most of them have a cause that they believe in. And the looting, I think, in a lot of ways is a cover for certain people to just go out there and cause havoc. And they don't really care about the actual issues. They're using this as a way to go out and commit criminal acts, basically, and steal things. And I think that is, again, something that certain people will tend to say, like, oh, see, all these protesters, they're just trying to cause trouble. And really, most cases, that isn't actually the truth. It's really people who are out there trying to do, like you said, their own thing and using the protests as cover, basically, using the fact that we all have to wear masks out there now as cover to commit their own criminal acts. And I think that's a separate issue. But like you said, it can take away attention from what's really important here. And like you've mentioned, all these different cities, they have different ways of handling things in the past and going forward. Do you see changes in the way Houston police is going to do things and how they're going to deal with the community? Based on what I've heard from our mayor and our police chief, and like I said, our mayor, Sylvester Turner, is a black man. Our police chief is a Hispanic. He's of a Cuban descent, Art Acevedo. And they've been very receptive. They've been out there. Our police chief makes a point to go out with the protesters and talk amongst them and say, what do you want? Like A lot of times he'll be out there as the news is interviewing him, and he's out there in the midst talking to these people and saying, what do you want? And they have some gripes, but he's trying to be responsive. And the mayor has said, and the city leaders have said, yes, we know we can do better. We know that there's issues that we can improve upon, but these are issues that have been going on. Like I said, in Houston, we've had issues now lately. It's been with body camera footage. That's been an issue. But this incident that happened a year and a half ago where these two people were shot in this no-knock warrant, and it was a shootout that actually injured four police officers, killed two people, and it was totally unnecessary. That's been a huge controversy, these no-knock warrants. And then you had a Houston police officer, a now former officer, who was indicted and is now being charged with very serious crimes. They found out for years he had been lying to apply these warrants. He was basically a crooked cop who had been fudging the books for years and uh, lying to get warrants and setting people up. And so the DA's office has had to drop hundreds of cases. So there's been a big controversy. The police officers have had to promise to do better. The department's had to reform. So the department's been facing sort of a black eye because of that incident for the last couple of years. But there have been other incidences too. We've had shootings and we've had shootings that were sometimes justified, sometimes not, sometimes very, as many of these are, cloudy circumstances where the police say we were justified, the footage, maybe other people say they weren't. And then there's the kind of, that not all the footage is conclusive. And sometimes there's partial body camera footage. Sometimes there's no body camera footage. And that's been a big issue. So in Houston, those have been the big issues in the last couple of years. But the leaders have, and especially after this incident, again, at this march, have all in Moss been saying, 
we are committed to doing better. We know we're not perfect. We must do better. The police chief himself was very passionate. There was a viral video of him among some protesters where he was very vehement using cuss words and just dropping four-letter words and F-bombs and saying, how could anybody, how could any police officer do what this officer did to George Floyd? He basically said, kneeling on a man's neck as he's calling out for his mom. What kind of sick bastard SOB does that type of thing? It was a pretty powerful viral video of the police chief saying that. So we kind of did some news stories where we talked about these tactics. Is this an actual tactic? And we've talked to some criminologists in Texas at universities, and they say this isn't taught at any police department at all. This kneeling on someone's neck, even when he didn't forget for how long he did it, just doing it in general, doing it for 10 seconds. This isn't taught. We don't teach any police officer. We've never seen anything like this. So they told us that. We called some of the local departments, and the local departments, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, Harris County being the county where Houston is located, said this technique is banned. We've never used this technique that's used in this. We don't use it at all. And in the Houston Police Department, we checked with them. We didn't hear back from them specifically because we don't always get contact with them. But we found this video of Art Acevedo, the police chief, basically saying, how in the blank do you do this? This is sick. We said, well, I guess that kind of sums up how at least the police chief feels about that tactic. So we can assume they probably don't use it if he would use that kind of language to describe what it was. So it's been universally condemned. And that makes people think that it's going to be different based on what the police chief has said or the mayor said. But again, this gets back to kind of what we talked about earlier with Bill and, and Mark is we'll see what happens now. Now the hard work begins. You can march for a few days. You can get crazy. You can give rallies. You can give speeches. You can make promises. But then the real work of governing and leading and doing all this stuff, especially when we're talking about cities of millions of people, it's complicated. And it gets back to that theme again where it's complicated and that's just the reality of it. So we'll see what happens going forward. But certainly the spirit and the vibe in Houston, and kind of like Bill said in Minneapolis, is moving to change right now. I guess in that regard, it's a positive. This event has moved it forward, really advanced forward the ball to make that change. The way you describe Houston PD, it seems as if any mistakes have been made is believed to be either isolated incidents or bad apples. Now, please correct me if I'm generalizing. Is it fair to say that the Houston community and particular communities of color are generally happy with Art Acevedo and the Houston Police Department, and therefore, unlike what's going on with the Minneapolis Police Department right now, there doesn't seem to be this concerted effort by the city and its citizens to dismantle or defund the Houston Police Department. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. What you described in Minneapolis the last couple of years, Bill, leading up to what's happened in the last two weeks, I would say is not remotely close to what's happened in Houston the last couple of years or the last couple of weeks. We haven't been at that point. Yes, there's tension. There's always tension. There's issues. These have been issues. These have been in the news. We've covered them. There isn't a boiling cauldron. It's ready to boil over of wanting to get rid of the Houston Police Department. No, I've never sensed that. I've been here almost nine years now. I don't feel that. I don't feel that from our mayor. I don't feel that from our police chief. I don't feel that vibe at all. So the vibe you're describing and sentiment you're describing in Minneapolis, what's happened there over the recent years and recent weeks between the community and the police department is much stronger and harsher than I would describe the sentiment is here in Houston. Although there is tension and there are incidences and there are controversies and there are things right now that even some people say, okay, police chief, we appreciate you saying all this, but... When are you going to release this body cam? When are you going to do that? So the police chief is getting some kudos, but they're pushing back on them. But it seems to be more constructive here than what you're describing and what I'm seeing from the Minneapolis City Council. Nothing like that has come from the Houston City Council, at least not Corey as yet. sort of talked about the dialogue that's going on between the city of Houston, the Houston Police Department, and the communities that they have there. And I do think that part of it is sort of important, is that both sides... 
look, if you go back through the history of policing, and it is a long, fraught history <laughs> in this country, but I think part of when it worked and where it worked was because officers were generally a part of the communities that they policed. And I think we've sort of gotten away from that. And I don't know if it's an easy answer to go back to that because there is such a general mistrust, I think, in a lot of communities between the residents and the police officers. But I think sort of doing the work, part of doing the work, whether it is defunding police, dismantling police, or just trying to change things is sort of having that conversation and knowing that there's not going to be a lot of agreement. I think, look, we know this. I mean, we all lived in dorms and apartments. You can get five people in a room and you can't get them to agree on something as innocuous as pizza toppings on an order. So when you're talking about trying to do something as difficult as create a consensus as to what constitutes Effective and essential policing, I think that's where the work comes in. And that's what's going to have to happen after the marches have stopped, after the protesters have, for the most part, gone home. That's the hard part. And it is more than just what happens in city council meetings or what happens in the mayor's office. It is about people in the community continuing to have those conversations and continuing to kind of push and prod at their local police departments and their local city governments to kind of institute the changes that they feel like are best suited to allow them to live in places where they feel comfortable. And look, I'll say this, Black folks, sometimes we want to call the cops too. But I think there's just such a general mistrust that it causes people to think twice. It's where you get things like stop snitching because there's just this general belief that in a lot of places, the cops don't really have your back. And I think gaining trust is a hard thing, but that is maybe the first step to maybe seeing how things can change going forward. Marcus, you talked about the trust, and I've seen that here in Houston with, I keep bringing up the situation with this no-knock warrant a year ago, but it was a huge incident where a middle-aged couple were shot and killed in their home, and they opened fire, the officers opened fire, four officers were shot and wounded, it was a huge incident. These couple was white, but this was a huge controversy, and to this day, I mean, just this week, we talked to the head of the local police union, and he's come on and he's been very open, that's where some of that change Marcus talked about, they can't just be the city council and the mayor, it's got to come from the inside, and the police union head said, we, our officers need to recognize that, recognize the bad officers, the bad apples, the people that aren't doing it right, the people that are bringing shame onto our department and bringing ill repute onto our profession. And we need to root them out too from the inside. That change has to come from us too, the good officers, the ones that are doing it the right way. So we've heard from that, but there are people that have been calling our station even to this day because of this whole incident, a woman who's a relative of one of the two people that were killed in that no-knock raided, and they were a middle-aged couple. They were accused of dealing drugs out of their home or something, and they were shot and killed And this whole misunderstanding. And this woman was in tears, and she was saying she was a relative, I think a cousin or something, of one of the people killed. And she says, this guy, he never did anything wrong in his life. He wasn't a drug dealer. They killed him. And she says, to this day, those cops and that police chief owe him an apology, and I can't feel like I trust him because that was my relative. And they went in, and she was in tears. The host was saying, there's nothing I can say to you. When you get someone that emotional, when it happens to a member of their own family. And again, this was a white couple. I'm just trying to show it's not just even among certain races. I mean, we've seen people in our community to this day because of that incident say, I have trust issues because of what they did to my relative because of this. So the police have some work to do when it comes to that. And that has to be done by them. Nobody can repair that for them. You're right. No elected official can repair that broken bomb when someone's in tears saying, you shot my relative unjustly and killed them. And I don't trust you anymore. So that's a tough thing to solve, but that's going to have to be done more from the inside. And that's going to take a lot more time. All right. I think we've had a good discussion so far. If you enjoy listening to this show, please subscribe and rate us wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. 
The website is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. You can find and follow me on Twitter. Send me any questions, comments about USC athletics at Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. And I'm joined today by three of my fellow USC Trojans, Marcus Grant, Corey Olson, and Bill Sue. If you guys would like to promote any social media, go ahead and do it now. Find me on Twitter, Marcus G, M-A-R-C-A-S-G. I'm not on Twitter, but you can go to KTRH.com, News Radio KTRH on Twitter or on Facebook, and that's where I post daily articles and updates and anything meaningful that I say is put up there. And I am on Twitter, at Bill Sue. That's B-I-L-L-S-O-U. There's still a lot more left to talk about, so I think the best thing to do is to make the rest of our discussion into a separate episode. So for my guests, Marcus Grant, Corey Olson, and Bill Sue, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for Episode 3 of the Everything USC Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in L.A. and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And, as always, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.